we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, to pray with me. Father in heaven, you've told us that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We confess that as we come to this word, while our fingers are nimble enough, I suppose, to open it, this book, our hearts can be resistant to it because of still this sin that resides within us. And so we pray that you would overcome all of our resistance and that we would see in this word that it is indeed the very word of God. It's life to us. And through it we can See the beauty and excellencies of our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to John in chapter 14. John chapter 14. I want to read a few passages that I've been reading lately concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. A few passages which are familiar. I won't read the whole of the passage, but just a few verses here and there. John chapter 14, please. First, this, verse 15. Jesus speaking. Hear the word of God. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then if you'll turn over to chapter 15 and verse 26. Again, Jesus. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16, we begin in the middle of verse 4. Again, Jesus. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? For because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it. To you Now, we remember, if you've been with us, remember the context here. It's this night, this, what we call 
in our Holy Week layout, Maundy Thursday, it's the night that Jesus met with his disciples. He gave them the mandate that they were to love one another as he had loved them, telling them that this would be their mark. That is to say, this would be the way that people would know that they belonged to him, that they were his disciples if they loved as he loved. And it was the night that he would be betrayed and that would then lead into all of the other uh, uh, events of, of, of his passion that he would be tried, if you will, in this horrible way of lies against him. He would be beaten and so forth. He would be crucified. He would be deserted in the midst of that by his own friends. He would be denied by this apostle Peter with whom he was very close. And then we know, of course, he would rise and then ultimately ascend. So he's preparing his disciples for all of that for him going away. So he tells them, you remember, that he's going to send another one in a sense like himself. So much like himself, he can call him another helper, Jesus being the first helper, another comforter, another one to bring strength, uh, another counselor, that is another one to defend them. Uh, he, would, he would bring this other one, send this other one by way of his father to them. And this other helper would be the spirit of truth, just as Jesus was truth. He would bring truth to them, the very truth that Jesus had brought to them. And it would be a sense in which uh, you could have Jesus or you could have the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it would be fine, in a sense, either one. In fact, he says it's even better that I go away so I can send him to you. Because there's a sense of intimacy with this Holy Spirit. Because he will dwell in you and with you. Now, we, we talked some last Sunday about this Trinity. This God in three persons. One God, three persons, this oneness, this sense that if you have one of them, either Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, in a sense, you have them all because they're unified. So Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus could say, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me. That is to say, he'll show me, that is Jesus, to you. In, in fact, we're all coming. The Father will come. The Son will come. We'll all live in you in that sense. And so there's that kind of oneness. But there is a distinctness one to the other. When Jesus speaks of the Father, he speaks to him as my Father. He speaks of him as you. It refers to him, to the Father as him. And Jesus refers to himself as I or me. And thus the same towards and with the Holy Spirit. And so we see this distinctness. So we see different, if you will, roles. And, and, and we call them persons because they have bodies and because they're corporal like we are. Jesus does, of course, the Son of God now as this eternal body. The Father and Holy Spirit, spirits, no body. We call them persons because they are personal, not impersonal. And they have characteristics of persons, of having a will. There's an agenda, and they teach, and they guide, and they interact, they're relational, and, and all of that. They speak. And so, when he says this Holy Spirit will come, it's not an, he is not an it. 
not simply a force or a power, not something we plug into or get more of, but he is a person who comes and brings himself to, to dwell with us. And as Jesus puts it, in us, brings the very, very presence of God to us. And, and, and Jesus says, now, now when he comes, what he'll do is glorify me. And, and so you're, the focus of your attention when you're in the Spirit you are as believers the focus of attention will be upon Jesus that he'll make the work of Christ known to us he'll bring it up close and personal you can think about uh, the Trinity in, in one sense like this that the father is the one who who plans it all lays it all out works out all the details if you will he plans it all our salvation and the son then comes and achieves it. He wins it. He buys us. He makes atonement for our sin. In other words, he carries out the plan. And then the Holy Spirit comes and he applies it to us. He brings it up close and personal. And so thus, all those for whom Christ died then are received, if you will, because the Holy Spirit comes to them and enables them to believe and thus brings them new life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if someone asks you who saved you, you can simply say God did, right? And you'd be right. Now you can emphasize one or the other. You can say the Father laid it all out. and You can say that Jesus then came and died for me and atoned for my sins. But you could also have to note that it was the Holy Spirit who came and gave, me, gave you gave me new life in Jesus, brought it up close and personal. So, so that's the sense of, of, of Trinity. And so last week we, we noted that um, as this Holy Spirit is sent to glorify Jesus, first very much a personal application to these uh, disciples, um, this Spirit of Truth in verse 26 of chapter 14 but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's a, a promise to these disciples. He, Jesus has spoken to, them, spoken to them, and so he says he's going to bring now this Holy Spirit to remembrance all that I have uh, spoken uh, to you. And, and then also, in chapter 16, uh, we read, or, or 15, we read verse 26, that the helper will bear witness of Jesus. The witness will testify about Jesus. And we also then in chapter 16 and verse uh, 12, Jesus saying to them that he wasn't able to tell them everything because they couldn't bear it, but the Holy Spirit will come and he'll guide them into all truth. And he'll declare that which is to come. And all of that, he's going to glorify Jesus. So he's going to work in them in such a way uh, that they'll know the truth. Now, fortunately for us, they wrote it all down. And so now we have the word of the Spirit, both Old Testament, but this mostly then these words applying to the new since the old was already completed by the Holy Spirit by this time. So, so he says, they'll write it down. They wrote it down for us. So now we have the word of truth, if you will, the word of God, the word of the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to listen, hear the Holy Spirit speak, we 
We read this, you see. So God speaks to us. You want to listen to him. Uh, so it has two parts. You can read this part and put the other to your ear. Uh, that's silly. But we have this listening, you see, to the word of God, to the Holy Spirit, as he speaks by way of the word. Now, the question for this week, then, is this. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is done? Does that mean, then, since he got the word written, then he went back to heaven to hang out there with the Father and the Son? Does that mean he no longer has any work with regard to us, to us and this word? Now, the answer to that, of course, is no. He still is in us and with us and still in us and with us to be our helper, to help her, to come alongside us, to strengthen us. And he does all of that by way of his word. I mentioned at the offering time that when we come to worship, we pray. We have a prayer of invocation, calling upon God. We have uh, prayers of confession. We have prayers of supplication, prayers of consecration, and so forth. But also, you'll notice we have a line in our worship order, our liturgy always, whether the line is there or not, I think all Christian churches do this, they pray somewhere around the time of reading the Bible. Sometimes they pray after they read it. Sometimes they pray before they read it. We do it before because I think I'd rather get the help starting then as opposed to after. But uh, uh, we pray before and we call it the prayer of illumination. And the reason that we call it the prayer of illumination is because a work of the Holy Spirit is to bring light, to shed light on His Word. Um, J.I. Packer, a theologian of some note, puts it like this. This is the work of the Spirit in imparting this knowledge is called illumination or enlightening. It's not a giving of new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text as heard and read and as explained by teachers and preachers and writers. In other words, this work of the Holy Spirit, this is, this is great, by the way. <laughs> Smile. This is necessary for us. If it doesn't do this, we're sunk. I'll explain why in a minute. But this is a personal work of the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, and if you read the Scripture and see in it the truth of Christ and believe it, this has happened and continues to happen in you by way of of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered why it is when you read the Bible or when you listen to it read or when people are preaching and teaching it and all of that and you believe it and, it, and, it, it, and you're not averse to it, that, that you, you embrace it and say, yes, that's life. If you ever wonder why that's true for you, and it isn't true for others, at least at that moment in time, hopefully it will be later. That means that the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, 
the spirit of truth came and personally helped you, enabled you. It isn't that you're smarter than everyone else. You might be, but that isn't your ticket. It isn't that you're, you do more good things than other people. You might, but that isn't your ticket. The Holy Spirit of God has come in you, as Jesus said, to be with you and has enabled you then to not only understand, but to embrace, to believe, to know that this is the word of God and there is life in these words because they come from God. Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century wrote a sermon with a ponderous title. The title is this. The title of this sermon is A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul by the Spirit of God Shown to be both a scriptural and rational doctrine. Now, that title is longer than some sermons. And now you know why I don't title sermons because that title intimidates me. I don't know what I would say, how I could top that title. But that was the title of his sermon. And it's about illumination. Um, a divine and supernatural light illuminate, immediately come directly imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God. And then he says, I want to show that it's both a scriptural and a rational doc, uh, doctrine, that it's biblical and it makes sense. So here's how he defines, I'll be reading a bit from this sermon this morning. Here's how Edwards puts it. He says, This spiritual light is not the suggesting of any new truths or propositions not contained in the Word of God. In other words, when we talk about illumination, it isn't that we read the Bible and, and then apart from what that passage is saying, apart from what that passage means, as we think it through with our minds, uh, apart from what that means, that God is going to say something to us. No, 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 no. That isn't it. It's, it's not special knowledge. It's some magic right? This isn't special insight. It's not a reading between the lines or outside of the lines. It's reading the text and getting it. So he says, the spiritual light is not the suggesting of any new truths or propositions not contained in the word of God. This suggesting of new truths or doctrines to the mind, independent of any antecedent revelation of those propositions, either in wording or writing, is inspiration such as the prophets and the apostles had, and such as some enthusiasts pretend to. In other words, he's saying new truths, new doctrines, these things, th that's, what, that's what the apostles and the prophets who wrote got from the Holy Spirit to lay it out. We don't get that, okay? We're not writing scripture. So at the end of your quiet time, you don't add a couple of lines to the book, you know, and then send it to everyone and say, hoo hoo, got a little more here. No, 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 that isn't it. It doesn't, it doesn't go beyond the bounds of what that passage means. But he says, but this spiritual light that I'm speaking of is quite a different thing from inspiration. It reveals no new doctrine. It suggests no new propositions to the mind. It teaches no new thing of God or Christ or another world not taught in the Bible. Right? That's our bound, boundary there but only gives, and here's how he puts it, 
a due appreciation of those things that are taught in the Word of God. In other words, he says, you, you get it. Not simply the meaning of it. You, get, you have to get the meaning of it. But you realize that even a person who hasn't been born again could study this book and get the meaning of it. This isn't a secret book. There's no code here. It's just sentences. Now, sometimes it's not easy. You have to figure, you have to study, and so forth and so on. You've got to sort of get what the point is. But it's possible, you see, for a person to read it and go, oh, I know, it said Jesus died on the cross. Who? But what the Spirit does is it enables us not only to say, yes, Jesus died on the cross, but to, but to believe that and to love that and to say, yes, that's life to me. That's what the Spirit does in us. The Spirit enables us to see the, the Bible, if you will, as the psalmist saw it. Psalm 19, the psalmist says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. This is right. This is true. It's not just it says this, but this is really true. It's not that I understand the meaning of it. No, 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 no. This is true. He says, the law of the word is perfect, reviving the soul. He says, what, what the Spirit of God does is take this word and, and, and use it in such a way in our lives to revive us, to give us life. The law of this, the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple, making us wise concerning the things of God. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hardest. In other words, we read this and go, yes, if this isn't true, I'm sunk. But it is true, so I'm not sunk. It is true, so I have life, you see. That's what it does for us. The fear of the Lord is clean. Uh, I'm sorry, where the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous are altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. In other words, saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is at work in you to illuminate this word not only understanding it but you're loving it you're seeing in it how great God is you're seeing how sufficient Christ is and you're saying yes that is my life now my suspicion is when you read the Bible that doesn't always happen We'll have to talk about that. But Edward's word is, is a due appreciation of it. We really get it. He goes on to say this, if I could read him just a bit more. He says, there's a divine and superlative glory in these things, an excellency that is of a vastly higher land and sublime nature than in other things, a glory greatly distinguishing them from all that is earthly and temporal. He that is spiritually enlightened truly apprehends and sees it has a sense of it he does no merely he does not merely rationally believe that god is glorious but he has a sense of the gloriousness of god in his heart there is not only a rational belief that god is holy and that holiness is a good thing but there is a sense 
of the loveliness of God's holiness. There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. You might say, yes, I really want that. I haven't really gotten that. I've gotten bits and pieces of that. I get it, I believe it, I know it's my life, but but I want to get there. That's why I read Edwards, because he has a way of saying these things that, that, that even if you don't understand all of his cadences and all of his commas and all of his language, you go, yeah, he's saying something great here about the Word of God, and and I want to know it like that. That's the illumination. That's the dependence. That's the promise of the Spirit in our lives. Of course, there's maturity here. Of course, begin this way. Sometimes we get this great glimpse at our initial conversion, and then it wanes. But, But... but there's a growing in this. I, I trust we know that after you've walked in this for 20 years, it'll be sweeter than it was in the beginning. It should be. We've walked in this 30 years. It, it should be sweeter than it was at the beginning. This is the anticipation of it. This is, this is what gives us the courage to read this book, to pick it up, and to say a day will come. A day will come as I persevere in it and as I listen to it and as I listen to people talk about it and as I live this out, the day will come, you see, when I'll see Jesus more glorious than even now. I'll see God is more holy than even now. I'll see myself as more secure in Him than even now. I'll see all of that. I'll, I'll, what does the psalmist say? Taste. And see <laughs> that the Lord is good. Just don't, we can say the Lord is good and we can know objectively that the Lord is good and we can experience some of that. But he says, no, no, what I want you to do is, mm, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. That is the work you see of the Holy Spirit. And we can see it, for instance, in this passage in John 16. The Holy Spirit is is working in active, verse 8 of John 16. When he comes, the Spirit that is, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus saying, I'm sending him because I won't be here. I won't be, I won't be here to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, So he will do that. So it's a personal work, you see. This is what he comes to do. In the lives of people. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. In other words, he's saying, listen, they believed in me. They wouldn't need to be convicted of their sin. They already know it. And trust me, but they don't. So how will any really come to believe in me? Well, the Spirit will come, you see. And he will do that work through his word to convict of sin so that They'll believe in Jesus. You're a Christian. He's done that work. Done that work in you. Then he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Jesus said, I can't convict them of of their lack of righteousness, that they're 
righteousness that they think is their righteousness really isn't righteousness. It's, as Isaiah said, like filthy rags. It isn't righteousness at all. But you see, because I go to the Father, the Spirit will come and He'll do that work. So if we've been convinced that we haven't got righteousness, that we're spiritually bankrupt, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, you see, in us to bring that conviction. And then Jesus, because I go to the Father, because I go to the Father shows that I'm the righteous one. I've been received by the Father. And so if you know your own lack of righteousness, and you know the fact that Jesus is the righteous one, to trust in Him, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged, if you know that when Jesus died, that was a judgment on sin. That was a judgment on Satan. That was a judgment of sinners. If you know that, and you know, judgment has come. And he says, oh, the Holy Spirit will come. You know, convince people of that. Convince the world of that. In fact, we see that taking place as the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. We see all of that work of the Holy Spirit. You remember, the Holy Spirit comes upon these disciples. Peter preaches. And when he preaches, as the Holy Spirit has come, you guess he talks about Jesus. That's the mark of the presence of the Spirit, that Jesus is glorified and exalted. So Peter talks about Jesus. In verse 23 of chapter 2 of Acts, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. God raised him up, loosening, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he lays out the gospel. He lays out this, this truth. Then he also goes on after a while to say this as well. It says that being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke, that is of Abraham, the, about the, uh, or of David, about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of, and of that we're all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out for you that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Now what happened at the end of that? Next verse. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's a work of the Holy Spirit. He took, that was just true, these words. Frankly, some hear that and, and nothing happens to them at all. But by his sovereign will, he applied it there. And they were able not only to understand it, but to see it. And you see, the reason that we need this illumination they needed it. We continue to need it. Is because of, because of sin. Even as believers, we know that our sin has been dealt with. It's been dealt with first. Its penalty taken, and and and, and the power of it that is our slavery to it has been broken. So we're able to believe because of this work of Christ and because of this work of the Spirit in us to give us new life. 
but still sin resides in us. Still there's, there's something that's, that's of sin in us that causes us to be resistant to seeing the glory of God in his word. That's the very nature of sin. You know, the nature of sin is the Bible lays it out first in, in Genesis in chapter 6 after God created and, and after Adam and Eve sinned and then just those years after that, however long that was, by the time we get to chapter 6, the verdict was that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of men were evil continuously. That's the nature of sin. It's to, to rebel against God, to shut God out of our lives. And it causes our hearts to go against Him. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Who can trust it, really? That's the problem with our hearts. Deceives us because when we think of the things of God, it says, no, 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 no. That isn't true. Jesus said that men love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. That's the problem of sin in us, which needs to be overcome. It needs to be overcome by someone in us because we are in its grip at that, at that point, you see. What I read out of Romans 8 this morning, one of the passages, the mind of the flesh that is without God is hostile towards God. That's the difficulty. There's this hostility. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. In chapter 4, he says that our minds are futile when it comes to knowing the things of God because of sin. It isn't that we're not smart enough. It isn't a cognitive issue. It's a volitional one. It's that we're against God. And we don't want to believe. Again, if I may quote Edwards, again, he puts it like this. The mind of man is naturally full of prejudices against divine truth. It's full of enmity against the doctrines of the gospel, which is a disadvantage to those arguments that prove their truth and causes them to lose their force upon the mind. We have this natural, if you will, prejudice against God, this passage in Romans and, and chapter 1. is so explicit. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what we do, you see. We suppress the truth. Something's got to happen to enable us to stop suppressing the truth. And in fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord is to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That is, the Spirit brings to us this, this due apprehension, as Edward says. This is this grasping a hold of. It overcomes our resistance to see it, to believe it. It works in our wills no longer in bondage to the sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us to enable us to see it and to grab it and to believe. You know, though, 
that sin can also affect our ability to reason well. For instance, lust can cause a person to misjudge a situation and get involved in a relationship that if he had been thinking without that lust, he would have never rationally gotten into. Greed can cause us to misjudge a situation in such a way that without that greed, we would have thought and evaluated that situation very differently. A natural prejudice against another person for whatever reason can cause us to misjudge that person and and make a wrong judgment, a wrong decision about them. The, 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 The prejudice that we have against God, you see, causes us, even when we read this word that is objectively understandable, can cause us to see it wrongly. And this work of the Spirit overcomes all of that in us that we may see it. Now, we need to realize, I trust these questions are popping up in your mind and almost out of time, so I haven't time really to deal with them, but but we'll get to some of them next time. But, but, but the question is, well, then why don't we all understand every passage the same way if it's the Holy Spirit who's putting light on it? And my first answer to that is, I don't know. There you go. My second part of that is someday we will, when it's in all, when we're seeing everything clearly, now we see more dimly. But it still has to do with this sin in us. And it still has to do with the fact that we're still maturing in this and growing in this. And so that someone who first comes into it isn't necessarily going to have the same quality, the same light as someone who's been in this for a long time. And so we we learn by way of community and generation to generation. And we grow up in this and we mature in this. And in the midst of this, we're called to love each other. What's amazing is how much consistency in understanding there has been since Pentecost. It's amazing. Someone once asked me, so, Bill, what's unique about Grace EPC? What's unique about your church? And I said, well, perhaps it is that we're not trying to be unique. Our hope is that if somebody, from a Christian from the third century could walk into this sanctuary to worship with us, they would recognize what we're doing and who we're talking about. And if somebody walked in here from the seventh century, they would recognize what we're doing and who we're talking about. And they would go, yes, I worship him too. Somebody from the 10th century or the 15th century or the 18th century or somebody from various walks of life who are believers in Christ even today, that they walk in. So we're not after that. So it's amazing, and I think, we can, I think that's true. I think that's the consistency of what we believe. What's amazing is even in the midst of the sinfulness of human beings and even Christians, that there's this much consistency in belief. And so what are we to do? 
Now, Martin Luther said that the life of the theologian, and he said that he wasn't taking technically, he said the life of the Christian really is threefold. That is, it's a life of prayer. It's a life of meditation. And it's a life of obedience in trial. To know the illumination of the Holy Spirit is to live that out. First, this life of prayer. We prayed this morning together, really, a prayer of illumination. It's, it's what Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, Paul prays this prayer. This is by the word of God. As you read the word of the Holy Spirit, what I'm praying for you, and he's about to write it, by the way, and he says, well, as you read what I'm writing to you from the Holy Spirit, what I want to happen is that your hearts are enlightened so that you can know, really know, the hope to which, that you have hope. You still read about it, but you have hope in Jesus. As you read this and you go, what have I to fear? You see, that you really do have it. That you talk about it. That you have it. That you know the glorious inheritance that is kept in heaven, as Peter puts it, for you securely can't be lost. Do you really know that? It isn't just some thought, but you know it. Your whole life is arranged around it and informed by it. And you know the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in you. You know it. He says, oh, I pray that the Holy Spirit will take away all your resistance, all your reluctance, all your unbelief, and you'll believe it. And in fact, there's a whole psalm written about, I won't read the whole psalm, a whole psalm written about the Word of God. And it lays out for us, in, in a sense, very much how we can pray. Psalm 119. For instance, verse 12, the psalmist prays, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. See, every time we open the, this book, that should be the prayer on our lips. It isn't just I'm going to read it because I'm going to check off some boxes or read it because I have to or read it because I want to be smarter in the Bible than everybody else. I'm going to read it because I can win at Bible trivia and all that sort of thing. Read it because I can be the smartest person in my Bible study. I want to read it so he teaches me so that I really learn. Verse 18, here's a prayer that should be on our lips all the time. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. This is a man who knew his own heart. This is a, a man who knew that his heart would keep him from the things of God. And so he prayed, Holy Spirit, overcome all of that. I can't overcome all of that so that I can live this out 
verse 88. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Verse 133, keep steady my steps according to your promise. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Use this word, God, to enable me to obey. Last verse of the psalm. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments, God. Always come after me with your word and incline my heart to it. So we pray. And then we meditate upon this word. You see, this doesn't mean because the Holy Spirit illuminates this stuff to us, this word to us, that we can stop studying and stop learning and stop growing. It doesn't make it easier necessarily. It simply makes it more believable. We simply see the glory of it. But we don't see the glory of it until we get in our minds. And so we have to read about it. We have to study it. It doesn't come naturally to us. We have to read it, you see. Learn it. Be in Bible studies together. Be talking about it together. <laughs> be reading books about it. Be hearing sermons on it and, and teachings on it. And being in Sunday school. Oh, our, our lives need to be immersed in this word. It gets us in our mind. And as it comes to us, then the Spirit is at work in all of that to enable us to see the wonder of Christ and the glory of God and the hope to which we have and the inheritance that is ours and the power that he puts towards us. It enables us to live, you see. It isn't an either or. It's a both and. He doesn't lead us, encourage us, strengthen us, comfort us, defend us apart from his word. It all comes through it. But the excitement, the courage, the encouragement we have is that he'll do that. Persevere in it. So we pray, we meditate. Meditate means to think on the word in the presence of God. And then we live it out. Luther's third point was we face trials. And these trials, you see, are things that try to keep us from obeying the word and and believing it and applying it and all of that. They, they, They cause us, these trials that we go through, at least the evil one has the intention for them, is to turn us away from God. But God gives us these trials, you see, so that we'll trust him even more. And so Luther says you can't really see it until first you pray that your eyes are open, second, that you meditate on this word so that you come to an understanding of it, and then thirdly, though, you you see it in the midst of your own life as you live it out. During times of tragedy, you go to the word that God would show you hope. In the midst of your sin, you go to the word so that God will reassure you of forgiveness. When when tragedy strikes, when difficulties come, when trials come into our lives, we go to the word you see, and and it's there that the Spirit breathes life into us. So the question is, what is it that you really see here? This bread and this juice, simple stuff we have around the house, things we see all the time, nothing terrible, terribly special in it. 
by the Holy Spirit, this is glorious. By the Holy Spirit, this means everything. By the Holy Spirit, this isn't, we're not. By the Holy Spirit, this is life to us. Because just like as the Spirit illumines the Word, He takes the sacrament. And these very simple things that are very understandable. It's easy to understand that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is, this is my body which is given for you. Everyone can say, oh, I know what Jesus meant. He meant that he was going to die for them. The same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. We say, yeah, I understand what Jesus is saying there. He, we, could, we could parse out all those words, but we know what he's saying is he's going to die. Just like the lambs in the Old Testament would die and shed their blood, there would be forgiveness for their sins. Is that life to you? You say, yes. If that isn't true, I'm dead. If that is true, then I have hope. If that is true, my sins are forgiven. If that is true, then I know that I belong to God. If that is true, and you go, that is true. How'd you come to know that? Your eyes were open. The Holy Spirit is enlightened. He's shown it to you. And now it's not just bread and juice. It's glorious. It's the very presence of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us. And we give you thanks for sending your spirit to bring up close and personal all that Jesus did to lay out, to reveal to us the gloriousness of Christ that we may believe. By your word, then, we are helped, strengthened, defended, guided. In every situation in life, Father, I pray now that you would take this bread and this juice and make it holy in the sense that you separate it out so that through it we can see Jesus, Holy Spirit. Enable us to know that he is present with us and enable that to Enable that fact to be glorious to us, life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This table, not the table of grace, evangelical Presbyterian church, but the table of the Lord and us. He invites to it all those who really believe it. Do you understand yourself because of the 
truth of the scripture applied to your life, your heart, by the Holy Spirit. That you know yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God. And that hasn't made you run from him, but rather run towards him. And thus you know also, being convinced, convicted of your sin, that your righteousness is nothing and his righteousness is everything. That you receive and depend upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. The judgment upon sin has come in Jesus. and There's life in him. And that you now desire to live a life that shows forth the truth of Christ. That true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left. These two down this aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And as you do, just let goosebumps of your goosebumpable go up and down your body because it means for you that the very spirit of God has shown you these things please come
Please stand with us. Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every fear has no place at the sound of your great name. The enemy, he has to leave at the sound of your great name. Jesus, worthy is the
pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray now that you would seal to us all the benefits that are ours because of Christ. Father, we confess we don't deserve any of it. But yet you've overcome even a rebellion and resistance that we might see the work of Christ and believe. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring your word to light in every situation in our lives for every trial that we face, whether it's a financial one, a relational one, a marital one, a parental one, whether it's an employment one, a friendship one, whether it's an emotional one, depression, whether it's physical one with disease. Whatever the trial we face, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring the very light of your presence to your word that we may have hope. This we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him. He was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. There be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son.